1: Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Nicole Constable, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Pittsburgh. We'll be talking about her book, Passport Entanglements. Protection, Care, and Precarious Migrations, published by the University of California Press in 2022. Thank you very much, Nicole, for
2: joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Of course. So... I have to say I really enjoyed reading Passport Entanglements and it comes across as a culmination of many years of collaboration and thinking. So to start off, can you tell us about the personal and intellectual trajectory that led you to this book? How did you arrive
2: at Passports? That's a great question. I could take two years to answer if you you wanted. Um, So if I go to... My first encounter with Hong Kong would have been as an undergrad exchange student, and then my dissertation there, which led me to become interested in domestic workers, even though that wasn't the topic that I did my dissertation on, and then I've been interested in migrant domestic workers ever since, and I've been there long enough and back and forth long enough that I've seen it move from being Filipino domestic workers in the 80s and 90s to then um, by the late 90s the number of indonesians growing in number and getting to know them much more so the the first book i did about domestic workers was made to order in hong kong which was the first edition was all about filipinos and the second edition which was um, written 10 years later had to incorporate all the indonesian changes uh, so that was the first step. And so that was the first book in what I see as sort of a trilogy about domestic workers. And the second book then is uh, Born Out of Place, which is about the children of domestic workers that are born in Hong Kong. And then the third one, which is almost entirely about Indonesian domestic workers, is about their passports. And I got interested in the issue of passports when I wrote the second book, the Born Out of Place book, because while I was interviewing Indonesians, I would say, oh, so what's your name? How old are you? And they would say, oh, do you want my real name or do you want the one in my passport? Or my passport says I'm 22, but really I'm 25 or really I'm 18. And and I was just so blown away by how easily they would say to me, this isn't my real one, this is the one in my passport or this is my real one here in Hong Kong, but at home I have a different age and name. And they were so unselfconscious about it. And so it wasn't until many years later in 2015 that I, that this became a problem for them and that I realized there was a real story behind it all. And so for my earlier work, I had tried to get uh, people from the Indonesian consulate to talk to me, but there was great hesitation. And at one point, an Indonesian friend of mine um, told me that the new consular official would really like to meet with me. And I was surprised and I thought, oh, yeah, well, I won't hold my breath. But in fact, he did want to meet with me and um, was very interested in the books that I had written and had in the course of this meeting with him, um, he had two of my books on his coffee table and asked me to sign them. And um, he had highlighted stuff and had questions for me about things. And then by the end of the visit, he asked if I wanted to co-author a book with him. And I said, uh, I mean, it sort of took me (laughs) by surprise. And I, said, well, you know, as an anthropologist, it would be very hard for me to co-author with a government official, um, But um, and that were I to do anything on the topic that he suggested, which I realize I haven't told you about yet, um, I would need to present different sides to it. And I said, if I were to do that, would you still want me to do it? And he said, oh, yes, yes, of course, of course. It's a topic that needs attention. But then to back up a little bit, the topic was passports. And he was involved in a whole new um, way of renewing Indonesian migrant workers' passports in Hong Kong. And not just migrant workers. All Indonesian passports would need to be renewed by the person showing up and um, bringing all their documents along with them and then getting some biometric um, pictures taken and measurements and the person, it would be compared to everything in this database that they had to make sure everything aligned. And he was the one who was bringing about this new project to renew passports in Hong Kong, following these international guidelines on security, and um, the idea was it would help to prevent trafficking, it would help to prevent terrorism, all these things, that how important the international guidelines, uh, uh, how the guidelines pointed to the importance of passports and identity accuracy for security and national security in particular. And so his idea was, if he got all this straight with the migrant workers, you know that would be a great uh, step in the direction of security for the nation and for everyone else. But in fact, what he hadn't thought about was how it would create problems for the migrant workers. Uh, and part of the reason why, as I was to dis- discover, was that so many Indonesian migrant workers had these irregularities in their passports. So the um, correcting them or coming up with documents to prove that you were who it said in your passport was a problem. And up to 2015, the agencies, the recruitment agencies for migrant domestic workers were the ones who would just renew the passports and there was no problem. They would, um, The worker didn't have to do it herself but after that they all had to come in and that created a lot of problems but before i agreed to do the project or before i i said to him i would also need to check with the migrant workers who i know and especially the migrant activists who i've gotten to know over the years and make sure they were at least okay with that and i would need a variety of points of view on the project before committing, but it had never crossed my mind at that point that I would write a book that centered on passports or that were related to bureaucracy or to documents that hadn't been something that I'd ever thought about because all of my books before that were very much talking to migrant workers or to whomever I was writing, you know, the research was about and their stories and their engagements And so one challenge with this one was that the people who were most affected by this uh, who ended up in jail for um, immigration fraud were not the people who I was likely to be able to talk to as easily or as much as might have been otherwise Um, my pattern in my earlier works.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I love how you know, how you give us a picture of how fieldwork really led um, the arc of this trilogy, right? And I'm so excited to speak more about the fieldwork portion. Um, But before we get to that, uh, I want to get to the core argument of the book, right? Um, So through Passports, you encourage us to move beyond analytical dichotomies in migration studies like citizen migrant care control and state society and in fact you organize the book around these dichotomies Uh, and you know you also encourage us to move towards entanglements rather than um, these dichotomous ways of thinking so I'm curious about how this move from dichotomies towards entanglements inform your thinking about migration
2: Yeah. Thank you for that question. It's, It's something that slowly took shape over the years and partly thanks to some of my colleagues who got me interested in different dichotomies at different points. And then they came together as the book. So the earliest sort of publication and discussion was I was invited by uh, Johann Linquist and Mark Johnson to write an afterword for a special issue they were doing on care and control. And that got me really thinking about the way the two are not um, opposed, but rather flip sides of the same coin and how in many ways uh, this led me to some of the literature on registration and different things like that about how um, control is often necessary to receive benefits. But um, in the work that Lindquist has written, and Rachel Sylvie, cultural geographer as well, on the many ways in which migrant workers, but especially women migrant workers in Indonesia, are sort of encapsulated and controlled and escorted along the way um, from point A, their village, to the agency where they get training, to the overseas place where they go. And this care is also highly controlling and Uh, you see it at every stage so clearly. And so then it just got me more interested in the various ways in which both on a very common sense level of me watching domestic workers crossing the road with either a child or an elderly person who doesn't want to go that way, how they can control their charge, but at the same time, the many ways in which they're controlled by the whole system of becoming a migrant worker and the contracts and the different ways. And and that kind of links to the first book that I did on made to order in Hong Kong, M-A-I-D, because it was about all the different ways in which they're controlled and they resist the control. And in those days, you know, the sort of resistance was a really big deal. Um, I mean, that was a new idea then. Um, But so... The the care and control one was at the very center of the domestic worker herself and how she is controlled by the state, by the agencies, by her employer, by so many different things, but also the ways in which she can also exert control. And in that special issue, uh, Mark Johnson and his co-authors write about how they're both surveilled within the household through these video cams, but then also how Uh, They can use those recordings to say, hey, you know, you want me to do that? But I was up all night. Take a look at the video cam and you'll see I was looking after the sick child or whatever it was. You know, so the way in which these are intertwined rather than just versus each other. But then Citizen Migrant was one that um, I also owe sort of pushing me further on that to heath cabot and georgina ramsey who did a special um, issue on the sort of uh the the idea of where i developed the idea of being simultaneously a citizen and a migrant worker and how Um, those two terms, citizen, migrant, and of course, many different people have written about that as well. But using it in my field site, and also thinking about it in my life, as having been an immigrant, but also being a citizen somewhere else, it doesn't mean you're not a citizen, it means you may not be a citizen of that place. And we all know how being both, a uh, we don't all know, but a lot of us know how being both a citizen and a non-citizen at the same time in one place raises all kinds of challenges and, and questions and problems. So for this book, it was a perfect issue because the passport is a sign of your citizenship and it's what your consulate is supposed to be looking after you with that passport, but you're also a non-citizen in Hong Kong, where you're a migrant worker, so how does being a migrant and a citizen work together in different places? You know, depending on all kinds of different factors. So to me, it was a very rich and you know exciting way to do some of the things that Bridget Anderson and. Um, janine de hindon talk about in relation to the problems with migrant citizen containers or binaries and things like that and to really show how those can be intertwined um the the state society one was one i had harder time with because i was less familiar with uh, um, and i didn't necessarily have enough people pushing me on that one but um that it also helped me to, in a sort of more common sense way, think about the problems with those two things and the the containers, as um, I think both Anderson and Dahinden talk about that. So- yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Um, that all sounds great. And I love how, you know, you're showing us that These books are conceived in collaboration, right? Like the thinking is never um done by you know an atomistic individual. Uh, And you know another thread in the book is emic terms that you think through. And one that stood out to me was Aspal documents, and the term really grounds your thinking of the real and the fake when it comes to passports. So, can you explain this term for our listeners, and how do so-called fakeness and realness? shape migrant lives and the systems that seek to regulate them?
2: Yeah, I love the term aspal, which is a contraction of three words, asli, tapi, palsu, literally real but fake. And so Lenore um, Lyons and Michelle Ford wrote quite a while ago uh, an article on the aspal route, um, which is this sort of Um, uh, not quite, not legal, but accepted route of migration, mostly um, from Indonesia to other places like Malaysia that, and they argue in part, that these routes become developed because it's hard to go through the legal routes. Um, or that it's more complicated for certain people who, uh, to be able to migrate otherwise. But I always just found the term itself just absolutely amazing. And so when I started talking to people about it, they would also give me other examples of what it means. But, But it sort of seems like a conundrum or something, because it's How can something be real and fake at the same time? So for a passport to be real and fake, it's a real passport. It's not a counterfeit passport. It's not one made on a color printer or something. It's it's a real passport made by the government, but one that contains fake information. And people would give me examples um, like it would be like um, name brand um, Gucci handbag or whatever it is but it's not, um, it may be uh, not produced by them or produced by them, but that term, the terms are still used in that way for Aspal things. But the the example that was so interesting was in terms of your identity, that it can be um, real, but fake, and that you can have a new name and a new date, and it's still you, um, and it's on your official documentation. It's what the government gave you. And yet um, you have another one or you know you have more than one, which goes against the logic of it. And so there's there's one not very well-known uh, definition of uh, palsu or fake, which is that uh, associated with ghosts and spirits. And um sort of and it it blurs for me into sort of rumors and possibilities uh that can't that aren't exactly uh legit and and that's where people then sometimes just adopt their aspal identities and they become real for them I, I've had I've known people who um, before 2015, went to the consulate to try to straighten things out because they were marrying someone in Hong Kong. And they w- they have to prove that they're single or that they're divorced back home. So they have to show the paperwork. But if you've got an Aspal passport, how do you prove that you're unmarried when you're someone else for the migration? And... So the but the advice they got at that time from the consulate was just this is now your real name, just hold on to it. If you change it, it'll cause even more difficulties with the Hong Kong immigration. So hold on to it. That's you now. That's you from now on. And so I would hear a whole bunch of funny stories about how this Aspel identity became real and the other one was let go of. And but there were there were other stories also about uh, that are less friendly than that, that had more to do with things like um, being coerced into taking this passport because it was available, someone else who maybe it was their photograph on it and their name couldn't use it anymore. So the recruitment agencies are saying, you know, you can take this one and go this week or you might have to stay in the training center for another few months and wait and um, owe us more and all that if you don't take it. Or people being told, we made a passport for you, you have to go. And them saying, well, I, it's not my real name, I don't want to go with that one. Well, then you have to owe us this amount of money if you're not going. And you know situations that are just impossible for them, so they have to take it and they go to Hong Kong And then there's some who even in Hong Kong, they tried to correct the passports and change them. And we're told by the agency or by the consulate, just don't do that or do it when you go home, but don't do it now. And and then what happens is that once the the Hong Kong government sees that they're being changed, it it requires the change in their visa and in their Hong Kong ID which that in turn um, raises um, sort of the little red flags go up and people have to be called uh, to explain how this changed. And then when it becomes, if they admit that they knew about it ahead of time, then they get charged with immigration fraud. So it created all kinds of problems for the women and A lot of, well, the activist organizations were the heroes in this because they started getting the word out to everyone about what to do. And it took a long time because they were studying the situation, examining all kinds of cases and how they went and why this one got charged and this one didn't. Um, And they ended up telling people, like, if you get questioned, just say, I don't know or just say, this is my identity because the government gave it to me. Yeah, you know, I you know, I don't know how, but it must be true because this is what they gave me. Instead of saying, no, I had a different name before and I had a different birthday before, but when I came here, they gave me, you know, the agency gave me this one, and then I came to Hong Kong, then you've admitted that you knew about it. So that's when you can be charged with immigration fraud. So some women were charged with multiple cases of immigration fraud for every time they entered and exited with that document, knowing that it wasn't their quote unquote real identity. But there were some wonderful lawyers um, who got involved and who gave advice and um, as well as the Indonesian um, activist organizations that also learned from the Filipino activist organizations who'd already figured this out, you know, at least a couple of decades earlier, that if you've got this quote unquote fake identity, you just embrace it at least while you're in the process of migration. So um, the this idea of state care. And that the state is providing you with the care and the privilege of traveling where in fact they're involved as are the brokers with producing these quote real but fake passports those passports are what allow the agencies the recruiters and uh, the government to profit off of migrant workers so the brokers and the recruiters are helping these women who mostly have come from very small rural towns where they may not even have a birth certificate. They certainly, you know, don't didn't in those days anyway have the ID cards or any of the required paperwork that they needed to get passports. But then this became an opportunity for a lot of people to make money off of them to procure those documents for them. So the Aspol route and the Aspel documents have to do with on on the one hand, both helping poor rural people to acquire what they need to be able to travel and migrate for work. And so on the one hand, they see it as people helping them. But on the other hand, it's also people exploiting them and making money off of them. And the brokers often have connections with the government immigration or passport offices, and of course, they get a cut on it as well. So the the people who are the ones who um, s- benefit from it, make money off them, but the domestic workers and the migrant workers of different sorts are also supposedly benefiting from it because it facilitates their ability to migrate. Um, but it is a bit of a catch-22 mm-hmm. um,
1: yeah and those complicated dynamics really come across in the book and you know even in your response you know wow talk about the entanglements right all these legal and personal and you know activist entanglements are really indexed through the storm so that's fascinating to hear um another part of the book that i appreciated was about temporality so I really liked your approach to passports through both events and non-events. So can you talk to us about the temporal work passports do do, um, through eventfulness and scale? Through? Uh, Eventfulness and scale. So Mm -hmm. events and also different scales.
2: Yeah. So what I liked about the passports and what they do with both temporality and scales is that they force me to think about the here and now that I was in in Hong Kong, seeing the piles of passports in the consular office, seeing the little workshops that the activists did, showing, you know, transparencies and rules and passports and literally looking at the object itself right now, but then also thinking beyond that into other spaces beyond Hong Kong here and now, so that the life trajectories of these women and the temporalities of their lives in these villages, mostly in um, Central and East Java, where, you know, whole villages of people would be linked to essentially poverty caused by overpopulation and resource extraction from even the colonial period um, that displaced people into different locations. Um, And then sort of thinking about the labor mobility that took place even before that and the patterns of forced labor, um, the patterns of extracting labor from different times and places, but especially how the history of the communities that are the sending communities of migrant women workers are often the same communities where labor was extracted from to do work. Um, for, uh, for example, for the Dutch on the plantations and and things like that and then it led me to be thinking about and looking at the different documentation for the different mobility of people you know for the movement of people to do slavery and indentured work and prison labor and some of those different forms of labor historically and currently and how those you know intersect on some levels and are entangled with each other and it, it i'm not a historian but the historical side of these things which i think are awaiting a historian to do more of that work that i couldn't do but was so fascinating to me how the kinds of documents that existed for people to travel on ships from Indonesia, which wasn't Indonesia then, you know, but to other parts of the world and how people could move as cargo and how people could move, um, you know, as a list of numbers of people who you're moving from one place to another um, versus the way that migrant workers in some ways are sometimes viewed as commodities as well. And so some of those blurs of events and places Uh, one of the ones that kind of it's a little tiny detail but it kind of blew my mind was how one of the old pilgrimage sort of um dormitories where pilgrims to the middle east would stay and i think it was in jakarta is now one of the training center dormitories for migrant workers to go abroad and so there's these different layers of what's happening in different places. But the idea of the, the events and the non-events, um, that, I got that idea from the work that Jessica Falcone has done on the giant Buddha statue that was never built. And uh, I, I really like that example. But in this case, it would be given all these passports that are Aspol passports and it's probably from my estimate and that of most of the uh, activist domestic worker surveys from a third to a half of all indonesian passports um, at least in by 2018 or 2019 were aspol passports and so given that why were so relatively few Too many in any case, but relatively few women ended up in prison and relatively few were taken to court. What happened to all the rest of them? Why did they not result in events? And that's a fascinating issue, I think. Part of it is that the records probably were so bad that they didn't show up. Some had only ever traveled with Aspol passports. Um, some left Hong Kong before they ever had to get to the point of renewing it because they were afraid they'd get caught. Um, but there were probably most of them were just not, there wasn't enough data to show that it wasn't right. And um, so that idea of the the non-event, but what's underneath it is to be fascinating i think anthropologists always get a little worried when things they expect to happen don't happen but i think (laughs) there's often a story there
1: yeah absolutely um yeah i really appreciated that as well and on that note i want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your methodology as well so you know speaking of things that you know anthropologists expect to happen I really appreciated your honesty with sharing thoughts that you had at passport checkpoints that might be uncomfortable like um, you share how not being allowed in the country would make a good story for your book so how do you navigate your positionality both as a person who's crossing borders and as an ethnographer concerned with a good story
2: Yeah, I think I do fantasize about what a good story it would make to be stopped at the border or next time I go to Hong Kong, end up, uh, you know, in uh, detained for migration reasons. I realize that that's a really stupid fantasy. Um, but I also, it's it's an exercise in a way it's a mind game with myself although I know it would be pretty horrible, it still would be pretty fascinating. Um, but when it comes to passports and realizing my privilege is where I think it's the most useful way for me to think about it. Because while I can fantasize about it and feel you know relatively sure that I would get support and I would get out, um, I know that a lot of my migrant worker friends have real problems crossing borders and they have to perform the right way and dress the right way and sometimes pay people off and all those things that I've never had to, I realize how privileged I am at not having to do that. But what it does is it forces me to really listen to their stories and rather than just think we can joke similarly about it. And so I realized once that I I hadn't appropriately understood really the gravity of Mm -hmm. other people crossing borders when it can be frightening, potentially violent, um, really risky. And um, so I've tried to make it more and more of a point of really as um, activist Annie Lestari said to me when we brought her to University of Pittsburgh to give a talk and we were talking about responsibility of ethnographers relative to the people among whom they're studying she said you know there's I, I'm sure I'm misquoting her but it was something like, you know, there's work that we really don't want people to do. There's work um, that we really want to do. And there's work that's just okay. And okay was like, good. And um, (laughs) she said how, you know, mine was at least okay. (laughs) And (laughs) I mean, it sort of both gives me a bit of humility as well as this project was one where I made a point of, you know, really asking, do you think this is a project that I should do? Because if you don't think it's worthwhile, I won't. And, and they were very excited and enthusiastic about helping me and providing we, me with material uh, that they thought would be useful. But it is, I think I've never really had a hard time finding a good story, but more because, not because it's the obvious story, Because, But it's more because I know that when I'm uncomfortable, there's probably a good story there. Anything that makes me feel a bit nervous or ashamed or embarrassed or any of that, or like the project is just never going to work, that's usually where there's a good story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, I
1: think that you know, you're coming to terms with that also comes across when you reflect on your commitments, right? So at the beginning of this episode, you know, you told us about how government officials have invited you to collaborate, but you were also pondering your own commitments with migrant activists and migrants you've been working with quite a bit. Um, so can you speak to us about how awkwardness and different commitments and those tensions figured into your fieldwork?
2: Yeah, it, so it figured into the fieldwork and it figured into the solution of how to put the book together at the same time, because I felt hopelessly entangled. I felt as though, how can I do a project that I've been invited to do by the, these Indonesian government representatives, which is also endorsed by migrant worker activists, And then there are all these other migrant workers and advocates and others who are involved in this as well. And I think I had sort of naively always thought that I was on the migrant worker's side and that that's how they saw me entirely as on their side. And I certainly felt good in that position, but then they reminded me in so many ways that as an ethnographer, I shouldn't be on a side I should be sympathetic to all sides, thinking about all sides, but I should be aware of my position as a researcher. And I think they knew that better than I did on some level. So the domestic worker activists I knew, like in my previous work with um, men who sought foreign brides, reminded me that this is what I need to do if I'm doing research. And so don't be embarrassed that you're talking to all different sides. That's partly what you're supposed to do. But I do describe in the book how there was that moment um, when I first went into to the consulate and was given a tour around from the inside. And I was on the inside of the glass door, I mean, glass windows where everyone was lined up on the other side trying to get their passports and their visas and their stuff. And I suddenly realized what that window was and that I was on the other side with consular officials and the workers from the consulate. And I felt immediately this fear, what if people on the other side see me here with these representatives of state power? And I realized how now I feel like it was a bit stupid of me to be so embarrassed, but it was also incredibly productive because none of them saw it as we're on different sides. They saw it as there are these issues that we need to resolve, that we need to work on. And in fact, the activists and the consular officials got along really well. They could chat, they could joke, they could criticize each other. You know, it wasn't all wonderful, but, you know, There were, and there were things that they disagreed on very strongly, but they taught me you can disagree on issues and how to handle them and still work together. And I think that was during the Trump era too. And so I just had this, it was a lesson I needed to really think about. And that is a constant challenge is how do you work with people who you fundamentally you know, think you're on different sides. And is it different sides, or is it, as the migrant workers said to me, different issues and positions on specific issues? And, you know, so to me, it's been sort of heartwarming and hopeful to work with these activists who have far less education than I do, but who are so much smarter in some ways in terms of the how to live your life and how to uh, negotiate for what they need and to stick up for themselves. So I don't know if that answers the question, but. um,
1: It absolutely does. And I think it shows so wonderfully how, you know, you've moved beyond this presumed dichotomy and saw how you yourself were entangled within these relationships, right? Um, so I really appreciated that answer. And you know, we've also mentioned that you're not a historian, uh, but you've been paying careful attention to histories. And in your words, passport entanglements draws on histories of the present. So for example, you let letters and official documents speak for themselves in the book, So I'm curious as to what working with archives of the present meant for you and how you came to the decision of incorporating documents in the book.
2: Hmm. Well, I've always loved documents, especially documents that I'm not sure I'm supposed to see. (laughs) (laughs) And so some of the documents were shared with me by people who, wanted me to see the documents as proof of what they were experiencing and but didn't want their identities to be known um, because they were the ones in the documents you know in some cases and the documents illustrated to me exactly what was going on you know so I would see a picture of the same person with a different name and a different birth date or a different, just one or the other in some cases, or um, pictures of passports with the same name and a different person in the photograph. And these examples, as well as letters that people had received from the consulate or um, from consular officials that illustrated to me these stories that I was hearing. And so those materials, um, the letters that were like the form letter they were given to take to the Hong Kong Immigration Office as proof of what had happened, that in fact turned out to be um, material that was used against them. It was like the letters became the document of what had happened in terms of the two identities and ended up being evidence of, quote unquote, immigration fraud, unbeknownst to the, and against the intentions of the consulate, uh, they were used against people. So in this case, the documents that go into making the passport as well as the passport and the documents that are based on the passport once you come to the place and get your ID card and your visa and all that stuff. The intertwining of all these documents with the passports was so important. And then the activists were also collecting piles and piles of examples of materials from people. So those were also important. Um, to see what was going on, as were some of the Indonesian language news articles and documentation of the events, um, sort of either press conferences that I wasn't able to attend or other documents that, um, that served as recordings of events from one perspective or another, somewhere from a doc- the government perspective, Others were from the activist perspective, different news agencies, all kinds of different voices and sources of these kinds of material were just fascinating. And I think they they fit so well with the documents and letters linked to this whole problem of the passport entanglements that that was especially useful and interesting to me.
1: Yeah, as a reader, I completely agree. And I love how you're, you know, weaving all these different materials into the book. And that brings me to a question about your writing practice. So in the book, you use weaving as an analytical metaphor, uh, especially when it comes to your understanding of entanglements. But to me, Uh, it also came across as a methodology in ethnographic writing. So how did weaving inform your approach to writing and putting all these different narratives and documents and um, all these other perspectives together?
2: Yeah, so weaving is both one of my hobbies as well as one of my um, visual metaphors and how I think of putting things together. So there's there's a kind of um, yarn that's Japanese that's called sock yarn. That's a mixture of silk and cotton, and it's all these different colors. And so you can weave it. And instead of getting just one color, you get this rainbow of different shifting colors. And so in weaving, I've never liked to just follow one pattern or one kind of color scheme or anything, you know, um, nothing symmetrical or planned. I like to have it be uneven and thick and thin wool and all different colors. But in any case, so in writing, the one problem with the book is people think of it going from start to finish in a linear way and weaving is also very linear too that's how a loom works but I think what's what I like about passports and passport entanglements is you can think of it more like the weaving considered a god's eye which I realize that's kind of a it's a somewhat ethnocentric and hopefully not too egocentric approach to my work. I don't think of myself in any way as, you know, (laughs) any kind of god. But but the god's eye has the colors go out and and the wooden sticks go out in different directions. And then they're all entangled with one another. So I like to think of it as like, in terms of the writing, the passport in the middle, and these different directions you could go out. And in a sense, the chapters are those different directions with the different pairs. And they're all connected with one another. But the the order in which they come is somewhat random. Like you could probably move them around and have the state and society first and the care and control last, or the citizen migrant, wherever you wanted it. Um, And so I like the idea of a book having a structure that you can play with, but that also makes sense. And this one of all my books, this is the one that took me the longest to figure out, but it's kind of both an aesthetic pattern as well as um, in this case, the theoretical pattern in a way is the entanglements and i also really like the idea of um in weaving when like you're not really supposed to when it breaks you're not supposed to really tie a knot Uh, you're supposed to kind of intertwine the threads again to try and make it look like they're continuous but i don't want to do that and that's where i like the non-event as well and the idea that there's more work for someone else to do like a historian because I think it's good for us to be really clear about there being gaps in it and spaces in it and stretching it and pushing it in different directions that are all artificial in a way but maybe still have some rhythm and some aesthetic and some you know artisticness to it Uh, and so that's kind of how I think about writing. I try to get people to have fun doing it and to enjoy um, the writing and the composition. And I've learned this partly from some of my students in composition and in other disciplines too, is how the writing itself um, and the methodology, like ethnography is always... um, you know, there, there are days where you feel you haven't accomplished anything. There are times when you think it's going to not work because of these non-events there or problems you've encountered or people who are not happy with what you're doing. or um, And then there are other times when it's just these stories that are so rich, they make your mind explode and sometimes so sad and awful um, that... They make you feel things through other people's lives, Um, so that's what, you know, I enjoy about it, but also what seems important to convey.
1: No, absolutely. And that's such a rich way to think about writing and, you know, composing one's work. So thank you very much for um, giving us that to think about. So my last question is, what is next for you? What are some new projects or questions or viewing projects that you're interested in right now?
2: (laughs) Well, right now, what I've been thinking about, and I'm not sure how far it will go. But what I am hoping to do is to follow up on a project I started a long time ago that I've gotten little bits and pieces of it here and there on changing discourses of human trafficking in relation to migrant worker activism. Because when I first started the work um, in the 90s, they people did not see their work or what they did or themselves as trafficked in any way Um, but they they emphasized their choice their um, plans their intent but that was before the passport entanglement problems and it was also before the 2001 trafficking in persons report for Hong Kong and all that, and that gradually became a way for activists and advocates to uh, expand the knowledge of the kinds of problems migrant workers experienced. So even if they didn't see it as trafficking per se, it became a way to talk about their problems. So Hong Kong has a very unique history. Well, maybe not that unique, but a somewhat unique stubbornness in Asia about passing new anti-trafficking laws. And so I'm very interested in how those laws work and don't work, and those who are pushing to introduce more of those laws, the advocates' positions and the contradictions embroiled in all that, as well as the US government vested interest in anti-trafficking laws. And the ways in which they can both potentially help migrant workers or not, um, I played around with that idea a little bit in passport entanglements. Where if there had been anti-trafficking laws, could they have used those for the migrant workers to be seen as the ones who had been trafficked rather than the ones to be doing, you know, guilty of immigration fraud? Um, And I don't know that that would have ever worked in Hong Kong in any case, but playing with those ideas and the different complexities of that idea of human trafficking uh, is something that interests me now. I never know in advance if it's going to be just an article or two or (laughs) if it could be potentially a book. So that's the next project
1: in any case. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And in the event that it becomes a book, then we'll be looking <laughs> forward to having you uh, here again. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: thank you. So thank you very much, Nicole, for joining us and for your insights.
2: Oh, my goodness. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, the pleasure is all mine. This is your host, Aliza Jan. This discussion of passport entanglements, protection, care and precarious migrations published by the University of California Press in 2022 is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.